Our scripture text this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and I'll be reading verses 9 through 14. Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words. God, I thank you that I am not like everyone else, crooks, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to look toward heaven. Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity um, as a member of the Board of Trustees at Northwest Nazarene University to go to, to NNU and to... Um, to go through a bunch of meetings for the administration policy stuff for the school and won't bore you with all of that. It's interesting to me, but not to everybody. Um, but, but during that, that kind of meeting and during those meetings, there's something that, that in kind of the charter of the school, the board of trustees has been entrusted with. And that is um, looking over kind of the new and recent hires at the school and, and sort of, it's not really giving approval as much as it's having oversight over the people, particularly the, the staff and the faculty who are hired at the school. It's just something we do. And so along with all that, the, the board of trustees gets this, um, this digital file of kind of every application, every, um, every resume and every CV that, that every one of these people has sent to the school in order as part of their hiring packet. And I'm not going to tell you what was in those because that's confidential information. But what I'm going to tell you is that we are tasked and we're told we're to, to go through all of these and read through all of these because there are certain kind of requirements that the school sets forth as to who they hire, um, you know, church attendance, uh, fidelity, and saying, yes, I'll like follow the Nazarene doctrine while I'm a professor at this school, that sort of thing. And so you get to read a lot of interesting stories, a lot of interesting testimonies of what God has done in people's lives, what has brought them to, to be a teacher or a coach or whatever at, at, a, at a Christian school in Nampa, Idaho. It's, it's fascinating to go through them. Uh, I, I was struck by a, a couple of, of the applications that, that I went through. I promise this connects. Um, because along with their application resume, oftentimes people will submit a resume or a CV. Uh, a CV is basically, it's kind of like a resume, but it's more like just a list of everything you can think of that would show that you are qualified for the position. Right. It, it's not just work experience, although that's in there. It's like articles published and um, awards won, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there were a couple of, of the applications in there that like the CV felt longer than the rest of the application. The application's like six, eight pages long. And I remember as I was reading through those, those, those CVs, those resumes going, this is really impressive stuff. Now, this is, this is not part of the sermon, just a plug for NNU. Like, there's some really impressive people who work at NNU. I just want to put that out there. Um, that's my alumni hat. I'll take that off and, and go back to my pastor hat. But I remember looking through it going, I mean, this is impressive. I mean, somebody in the music department, just, I mean, fascinating and fantastic. Like, just all that she has done, all the stuff that has been going on, all the, the things that that person is a part of, it was just overwhelming. And I, and I felt... Humbled is the wrong word. I felt small compared to that person. 
Like I'm just looking at going, looking how much this person has accomplished and published and done. I was like overwhelmed, like in awe of that person. And there was another one in, in the religion department who, who was just kind of a, just a short-term position. But, but I was looking at this CV going, oh my goodness, this person is impressive. I've never met either of those people in person. But just on paper, like they would hand me that paper. I'd be like, you are an impressive person. And it's got me thinking a little bit about the ways that we sort of measure um, success and what makes somebody impressive in our world. Right. One of, one of the ways that, that probably people in like an academic and in business circles do that, it's through your resume, through your CV, right? Right. You, you look at somebody's resume and you just can be like amazed at their resume or like sometimes you, you make out your own and like submit it for a position and go, there's just not, not a whole lot of meat here. I sometimes feel that I've only had, since I graduated grad school, I've only had two jobs, right? In the last, well, it's almost 20 years since I started grad school, I've only had three jobs, Right? It's not terribly impressive when you look at it. Like, I don't have this list of accomplishments, but, but it's one of those ways in which we use to compare ourselves to others. Right? Now, now there's lots of ways we do this, right? Um, for those of you who have social media, you go on Instagram and you see like the carefully curated lives of people and go, wow, they're doing all the fun stuff. And I'm sitting here in my office. Right? They're traveling here. And, and I, you know, my last vacation was to Colorado. Right? Like, you know. Hawaii, Colorado, right? Social media, we do this. Or, or even when we get together, like we, we, we compare lives sometimes, right? We tend to show, overshare the great things that are happening and undershare the ways in which we're real people, right? I, I find this when we get together as, even as pastors, right? Um, even if no one ever asks directly, it always comes up, how big is your church? Like how many people attend on a given Sunday? Right? Oddly enough, that's one of the first questions that strangers who know you're a pastor might ask you. Well, how big's your church? Right? They're not, they're not asking it for, for you know, nefarious reasons. They just want to know. But, but you, like this, this numbers. And we, so we tend to just sort of measure success by all these metrics. Like, you know, in the church, it's oftentimes dollars raised and, and, and bottoms in the seats. Right? When, when we go and we, we have pastor's talks, we tend to talk about those sort of things. Like we tell all the wonderful things we're doing with the wonderful endowments we might have in our churches, right? We can spend money in this and we're helping all these people. We, we tend to talk about success in what we've accomplished, right? And we tend to measure success in what we've accomplished. If you were to ask me if you're successful, like Pastor Mike, you're successful, I might hand you my resume or my CV and say, well, you judge for yourself. Am I successful? So it got me thinking, especially in line with this particular text of what it means to be successful as a person of God. What does it mean to have success? What does it mean to, to really do what God has asked us to do, right? Does my CV really say whether I'm a successful pastor? I don't know. What does it mean to success? And, 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 and why are we constantly comparing ourselves? And, and this is a little confessional here, right? With other people, right? If you, so driving home from this particular building today, I will pass no more or no less than four other churches. And, and honesty, I look and I say, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder how we're doing in comparison to them. This is not a holy thought sometimes. 
I, I start to compare myself to them by, well, did we have that many cars in the parking lot today? Or wow, they look like they had a really full service today. And I begin to judge my own success and my own worth in relationship to other churches. Again, it's confessional time, right? I'm saying me. And that's not always a holy thought for me. Because sometimes I get a little prideful. I'm proud of y'all, okay? So sometimes I get a little prideful of what we're doing, what you guys have done, what you've accomplished, and who you are in Christ. It, I like y'all, so I feel good about it. Sometimes it's the other way around, like they have more people or more money or whatever, 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 whatever. It's hard not to compare ourselves to other people, even when it comes to the Christian life, even when it comes to whether or not we're holy or not. Because sometimes we tend to think, and again, this is confessional, I'm successful as a church if I raise enough money, if our offerings are big enough, if I've got a certain amount of people in the seats, then, then I'll be good enough. Right? Then I'll be the pastor I really should be. Then, then I can go to the, the meetings and say, yes, I feel like I'm a good pastor. It's easy to start comparing ourselves in good and bad ways to others. But Jesus tells an interesting parable this morning to help us with that. It's one of the few parables in where we get the interpretation at the front end, which sometimes can be a good thing because it makes things a little bit easier for us to understand what the parable means, but can also be a bad thing because it can prejudice us. I'm like, well, I already know what it means. I don't have to listen to the parable. So I'm just going to tell you, at least for a little bit, ignore the beginning of the parable. Try to hear it with fresh ears. See it with new eyes. Because this, like, like many parables, has become one of those that we know so well that when we read it, we tend not to really read it. Again, confessional, guilty as charged. Sometimes we read and go, oh, I know what this means. And we don't stop to hear it anew. So I'm just going to invite you this morning to hear this parable anew. So it starts in Jerusalem. And Jesus says that two men went up to a temple to pray. So, so, so in Jewish culture, and especially in the first century, when we're talking about prayer, we're not just saying like, because we tend to practice a lot of private prayer and we tend to separate praying from worshiping. We're, we're really to read this as two men went up to the temple to worship, right? So, so worship prayer time happened twice a day at the temple, morning and evening, right? There was a sacrifice in the morning and there was a sacrifice in the evening. And so when you went up to worship on any given day, this is what you are doing. And so when we say they went up to pray, it's not just that they're kind of sitting in the back of the sanctuary lighting a candle. It's them going to worship. It's like a worship service. So we just need to see it in that light, right? That they're coming to the temple courts to worship, to, to witness the sacrifice, to, to, to take part in sort of what is going on with that sacrifice, which is the forgiveness of sins, right? This idea of, of forgiveness, of absolution, of being justified before God. So these two men went up to the temple to pray. And, and, and we're told that the two men are a tax collector and a Pharisee. Now, there's something interesting about tax collectors and Pharisees as we tend to hear, hear it in the church. Right? So, so this is the image that comes to my mind when I hear tax collector and Pharisee. This is the first kind of idea that comes to my mind. Right? So you have the Pharisee with even the upturned mustache. I mean, you can totally see this guy going, ha, 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 right? Like we, we tend to hear Pharisee as, as evil, as wicked, as uh, hip, hypocritical, as the villain of the story, right? 
I don't think any of us would look at this story, who've been around in the church at least, and, and, and have trouble deciding which one's the tax collector, which one's the Pharisee, right? Am I right? Can, can you identify the Pharisee fairly quickly? It's the guy in the foreground. It's the guy who looks a little shifty. But here's something we should know about Pharisees in the first century. They weren't all bad. Now, now we, we, we tend to think of them as bad because they're often foils in Jesus' story, right? They're, they're, they're often the ones who, who come sort of against and up against Jesus and who Jesus challenges and who challenge Jesus, right? So we tend to hear them as bad guys. We tend to boo and hiss when they come on the screen because we're, we're, we're sort of conditioned by our own readings and out of the way we've talked about them to see them as, as not good people. I want to try to help us disabuse ourselves of that notion. The Pharisees weren't all bad. The Pharisees weren't bad people. In fact, in the first century, the Pharisees would be the holiness folk. In fact, in the first century, the Pharisees are the people you want to come to your church. You see, the Pharisees are the tithers. The Pharisees are the faithful attendees. The Pharisees are the first to volunteer for all the projects in the church. The Pharisees are the ones who are there. We, we, we hear Pharisee and we think bad, but, but I just want to encourage you to hear Pharisee not as a bad thing, but as a good thing. That is as people who were deeply, deeply committed to the mission of God in the world. The, the Pharisees as a movement, their, their kind of idea and their role was actually to be more holy than they were asked to be. It wasn't totally that they said, well, everyone else is unholy and we're holy. They said, we believe in in following God to such an extent that we're going to take not only the laws that God has given us, but we're going to take the laws that God has given the priests upon ourselves and we're going to follow it so that we might be holy unto God. Their desire as a movement was to be holy unto God. I know it's hard to conceptualize given our reading of the Pharisees and scriptures. But remember, Jesus is telling this not to a church audience 2,000 years later. Jesus is telling this to the people in front of him who would not have boo and hissed and seen Pharisee as the mustache-twisting villain. They would have seen the Pharisee as the holy person, the righteous one, the one coming to pray to God. And so that's what we're told. That's what we're told about this. And that's, that's, I think, how we're supposed to read this. Based on everything I know about first century, this is how we're supposed to read this. We're supposed to hear this. It's, it's a parable that's supposed to be shocking, not something that conforms to our already existing prejudice. Pharisee. Holy person. So at the very least, we ought to read this as somebody came up to the temple to pray, to genuinely seek after God. Not a villain, a seeker. Now, the opposite is true of tax collectors, right? So, so, so in our kind of day and age, um, in the church especially, we hear tax collector and we think of, oh, Matthew was a tax collector and he was a wonderful disciple, right? We tend to hear that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus loved them. We tend to associate tax collectors with, I don't know, Zacchaeus, who in, though he was a wee little man, did do some really wonderful things, Right? He was the model of repentance. 
So we have this in our mind. We, we have this in our mind that tax collectors are, are, are good people just misunderstood. In the first century, that may have been true, but an audience hearing this would not hear of a, the humble and yet good-hearted tax collector. They would have heard of someone like this. Now, this is Scrooge. I used this image last week, I think. But this is probably more of the image that came into the mind of the first century hearer. Now, I don't know that for sure. I wasn't there. But everything we read about tax collectors in the first century, well, it wasn't good. They were not heroes in the first century. They were villains. So let me tell you a little bit about tax collectors that I've said before, but it bears repeating. So tax collection wasn't like you got a job with the IRS and your job was to collect taxes and you got, you know, sort of a paycheck from that. In the first century, how taxes worked in the Roman Empire is it was a bid system. Basically, the Roman Empire said, you, you, you must collect this amount of tax. And that was it. So if you, you, you bid on the job, you said, I'm going to collect this amount of tax and this amount goes to the, the Roman government. You could charge anything you wanted above and beyond that as long as you could get away with it. Right? So... Whatever your markup was, was what people had to pay because you were the tax collector. You were empowered by the Roman government to collect taxes. But you could charge whatever you wanted as long as people didn't revolt. And as long as Rome got their taxes, everything's cool. They were not considered honest people. In fact, they were widely panned as dishonest folk. As kind of scum of the earth type of folk. Like slimy, underhanded. Uh, Tax collectors... (laughs) remember, worked for the Roman Empire. So if, if you're a Jew in the first century, the Roman Empire isn't like the government you want to have around. They're the ones who have conquered your government and under whose thumb you live. So tax collectors were not only underhanded in that they could collect whatever they wanted as long as you didn't revolt, as long as you, Rome got their cut. And tax collectors were considered sort of uh, agents of the imperial occupying power. Right, so they were turncoats. They were traitors. They were defrauding their own people on behalf of the Roman Empire. Which is why this is probably what comes to mind when you say tax collector in the first century. Right? Not, oh, the humble but misunderstood tax collector. The, the villain. And again, I, just based on what I read and, and based on the, the sort of parable as literature, is that's the, that's the point. We're supposed to have these diametrically opposed people. Right? We have the, the, the Pharisee who is the model of holiness and the tax collector who is the worst of the worst, unrepentant. Right? Does what he does. No qualms about it. And we're told that these two folks go up to the temple to pray. They could not strike any like, further difference in the two. Right? Pharisee, holy. The kind of person you want to walk in your church doors, right? The kind of person that has welcomed them with open arms and gives and does all the wonderful things you want. Serves on your deacon boards. We don't have a deacon board. Serves on your church board. That's who the Pharisees were. And then the tax collectors, the kind of person you go, eh, they're here, but. Right? We're displaying some prejudice here, but that's kind of how we're supposed to read it. Jesus is playing into that. And so Jesus says, these two went up to pray. So first, the, the Pharisee goes up to pray, and it says the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Now, we tend to view that again through our negative lens. Pharisees are people, they're uppity, they're better than everyone else. Well, Pharisees wanted to keep pure, and so in the crowd, you don't want to touch people who might be impure, not because they're bad, but because it makes you impure. 
So why does he stand by himself? Well, well, maybe because he just doesn't want to be defiled. And Jesus says, be holy, be pure. If, if you touch something unclean, you have to go through this whole process. And so he, he perhaps just standing out, not just saying, I want to make sure. I want to make sure I'm good. I want to make sure I'm following the rule. I want to make sure that I'm doing what God has asked me to do. And, and so the Pharisee begins to pray and, and sort of gives God his list. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Right? He begins to list his achievements, right? God, I tithe a 10% of all my income. Cool. Good. God, I fast two times per week, right? The, the minimum fasting was not even weekly. And this guy's two times per week. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty holy. God, I don't steal stuff, which that's good, right? I'm not a, I'm not a thief. God, I'm not a rogue. I'm, I'm not entirely sure what rogue means, but he's not that. God, I don't kill people. Again, another plus. That's a feather in the cap, right? God, I don't collect taxes for imperialist occupiers, right? God, I thank you I'm not like this tax collector. Again, we are prone to read this negatively, right? We're prone to read this as if the tax, or the, excuse me, the Pharisee is bragging. How many of us have prayed, God, but by the grace of God, there go I? It's been a prayer I've said before. A lot of this is that kind of prayer. God, I'm not a thief. I thank you that I've never been in a position to have to steal. God, I'm, I'm not an adulterer. God, I, I thank you that I, I'm, I've never been driven to murder. Right? Those are good things, aren't they? I mean, we tend to read them negatively as if he is bragging about it, but these are good things. And, and the Pharisee is saying, God, I thank you that I do not. I, I thank you. He's giving praise to God for, for, for not having to go down these roads. Again, we tend to read this negatively, but, but I'm just asking you perhaps for a charitable reading of this guy. That he's not the total kind of jerk and cad we've made him out to be, but, but perhaps he's a holy person trying to be holy and thanking God that he's able to do so. Right? He, he looks and he says, God, there's a tax collector over there, but by the grace of God, there go I. I thank you that I'm not like him. Now, if he said that out loud, that's a little low. I'll give you that. But, but let's, let's try to give him a charitable reading that he's a holy person thanking God for the ability to do it. God, thank you for the strength. Thank you that I have been able to. He, he brings his list. God, all these things you've asked me to do and, and I've done them. I've, I've met the list. Here's my CV. And, and I thank you for that. I really do think we're supposed to read this, if not at least charitably, then at least that this guy's not completely a jerk. He's trying to do as God has asked him to do. These are all things God has asked us to do, right? Not be, again, tax collectors were considered widely bad people, right? It's a stereotype, but he says, I thank you that I don't have to do that. I don't kill. I don't steal. These are good things. I tithe. I give back to you because it's all yours. I fast because I want to hear and know you, right? These are good things. And so he prays like that. And then the tax collector comes on the scene and, and he too stands by himself, but he's not in the roguish position. Here's where Jesus sort of gives us a hint. It says he stands by himself and he can't even bring himself to look up towards heaven. And when he pulls up his list, there's just nothing on it. 
In fact, he doesn't try to give God a list of the good things he's done. It says that he beats his breast. Shame, dishonor, passion. And says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? Lord God, help me. And so Jesus ends fundamentally with this sort of implied question of who's right? We are preconditioned by many years of church history and lots of sermons like this one to say who's right. But if we're Jesus' original audience, who's right? Again, objectively seeing these two, who goes home righteous? Right? The one who has done all the things that God has asked or the one who hasn't? Who's righteous? I think the first thought of those listening to this perhaps was, that's that Pharisee. He's a good guy. He does all that stuff that I can't even do. Look at his list. I don't do all that. I wish God would let me do all that. That would be great. I think that's what perhaps the people are thinking. But as it comes, what happens? Is it the Pharisee who wins? Right? the tax collector who goes home justified. And again, we are conditioned because we've heard this a lot to say, yeah, that's as it should be. I'm not sure Jesus' original hearers would have said that's as it should be. And I'm not entirely sure that if we were to think about it, we'd say the same thing. Right? Has the tax collector shown enough repentance? What's he going to do tomorrow? Is he going to go back to his old life? Those are the questions we ask. So what makes the difference here? Why is it that the tax collector goes home justified and not the Pharisee? In my head, logically, I'm thinking, well, yeah, okay, God has mercy on sinners, but why? Why is the, why is this tax, or why is the Pharisee not at least held up as a model of doing things right. Jesus doesn't throw him any props. Here's the interesting thing, I think. The Pharisee brings his resume, right? He comes before God with his resume. And he says, here's all the things that I've done. They're good things. They're things God has talked about and has asked Right? There's some big ones on there. Don't steal, don't murder. Those are, those are the, in the big 10. So to not do those things is great. Right? I fast because I want to be close to God. He's got his CV out there and it looks really good. It's impressive. He's holy. At least as far as we can tell. If I were to compare my list to his list, I don't fast twice a week. Comparatively speaking, he's holier than I am. Why the tax collector? Why is he justified and this guy not? Well, it's because the Pharisee brings his list. The Pharisee comes, this, this man comes, this holy guy, this guy who wants to be holy and comes before God and says, God, these are all the things that, that you have asked me to do. And these are the reasons why I am worthy of grace, of mercy. Why that sacrifice that's being done at that altar at this time is for me. 
That's why it should be effective because I am doing everything I've been asked to do. God, I've done everything. I've checked every box. The the list is full and, and I've checked every box. I've done everything you've asked me to do. God, accept me because of that. In contrast, the tax collector comes with nothing. No list, no resume, no CV. He knows his CV doesn't stack up, right? Highest grossing tax collector last 10 years probably doesn't hold up in, in, in righteousness discussions. He knows he has nothing. And, and whether he knows in his mind or not, certainly it seems what Jesus is trying to get at is there is nothing that buys justification. There's nothing that buys our righteousness for God, before God. There's nothing that buys our acceptance before God. That's what Jesus seems to say. He says, as impressive as the list was, as holy as the man was, that does not make him righteous. That does not make him justified, for it is God's prerogative to justify whom God will. Or let me put it a different way. Jesus is in the business of resurrection, yes? God gives life to dead things. That's what God does. That is God's job. That's what we see in Christ, right? That God raises Christ from the dead and offers life, resurrection to all who would follow. What the Pharisees list says is here's a list of the reasons I should be raised to life or given life. Or or better said, the Pharisee doesn't realize he's dead and needs life. He's got it under control. He's a good man, and he thanks God for that. Let's give him that. That's appropriate. It's okay. But it's a list that starts with I. I do. I give. I don't. And he shouldn't do those things, and he should do some of them. But it's not he that gives life. Pharisee doesn't realize he's dead. What the tax collector has going for him is there's no list he can give. He realizes he's dead and needs resurrection. He realized he's on the out and needs life. And perhaps moreover, he knows that the only way he can receive life, he can receive justification is total and free gift of God. It's the only way he can ever experience life, ever experience the grace that God has to offer. Not because he can earn it, because he hasn't done a very good job of trying, for one. But he seems to implicitly know that at this point in his life, where he finds himself, there is nothing he can do that can earn it. He comes empty-handed, asking only to receive what only God can give, and that is grace and life. Again, the Pharisee comes bringing his list. And I want to say again, because I think it bears repeating. It's a good list. It's a great list. But he seems to have the understanding that this list is what will get him in and give him life. What he doesn't recognize is that for all the things on the list, those things are not what gives life. Life is only received in the grace and mercy of God through the free gift of Jesus Christ to those who are willing to say, I am dead and need new life. 
for all our lists, for all the things that we believe we have done well and done right. And they are good things. Please don't hear that they are bad things. But those will not bring us life. If indeed, as Isaiah says, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God, then there ain't nothing on our list that will impress God. Whatever good things I do, I don't don't know that God is impressed. Right? I don't think God's up there going, that Mike, he's... Right? I'm impressed by all the stuff he does. Right? He's so smart. He preaches so whatever. Right? I love his Photoshop. I don't know. I'm not sure God is impressed by what I do. But, but here I think is, is a secret. No, it's not a secret. We're not trying to impress God. Because we can't. If God is that which is beyond anything great that we can conceive, how in the world are we going to impress God? God's not looking for being impressed. God didn't create us to be impressed by us. In fact, we're impressive in as much as God created us. God God created us. He looked at what God had created and said, that is good. Because why? God created it. We're impressive to God because we are God's workmanship. We don't receive life by being impressive. Even in holy things. We receive life because God, in God's grace, in God's mercy, has given it and offered it in Christ. And we cannot receive life when our hands are full of all the good stuff we've done. We can't. Have you ever tried to receive something with full hands? It falls on the floor. You can't receive it. There's no room. You ever been in the kind of position where you're, you've got groceries in your hands, someone tries to hand you something? It doesn't work. We cannot receive what God has to give when our hands are full of all the impressive stuff we think we've done. We can only receive life from God with empty hands. Empty hands. Outstretched, hoping to receive the grace that God has given. Recognizing that we are, as good as we might be, we are still sinners who are saved by grace. That my righteousness, whatever it may be, does not make me a better or more worthy person than anyone else. My righteousness, as whatever it may be, does not make me any better than any person in this room. Guess what? My unrighteousness does not make me any worse than any person in this room. If the Pharisee had a fault, his fault was while he was praying, he was looking beside himself. My CV's better than his. Thank God for that. Literally what he says. But what, what God is asking and what Jesus is driving at here is in order to receive life, we have to recognize we're dead. And we have to come not with the arms full of lists of good works, but with open and empty hands. That we may truly receive what God has to give, which is grace and mercy and life in the life and death of Jesus Christ.
For if we die with him, Paul says, we will also be raised to him with him. But God doesn't resurrect things that think they're already alive. God can't, perhaps, resurrect things that already think they're alive. God can only resurrect dead things. And perhaps that's what the tax collector understands. I'm dead. He doesn't promise to reform, much as I wish he would. He just says, I'm dead and I need life. He says, I'm dead and the only place I can get life is in you. Your grace, your mercy. I'm not sure what things you're carrying on your lists. I've got a lot of stuff on my CV. Metaphorically speaking. I've got a lot of stuff. Right? I've never had big time rebellion in my life. Right? I'm a rule follower, so I followed the rules my entire life. I don't think God's terribly impressed by that. I think God likes it, like that I was willing to follow rules of my parents and stuff, but I don't think God's impressed by it. It certainly doesn't make me any more worthy than anyone else. Right? I knew from age 15 that I wanted to be a pastor. I think that I listened to God in that respect. I hope. I don't think God's impressed by that. I think God likes it, but I don't think God's impressed by that. It certainly doesn't make me any more worthy than anyone else. I I think God has taught me a lot, and I think I've been obedient in a lot of things. I don't think God's impressed by that. I think God's happy with it. It certainly doesn't make me any more worthy than anyone else. I need resurrection as much as anyone else. And much as I want to bring my CV before all of you and before God and before all my colleagues to prove I'm a good person and righteous, I don't think God cares that much. Because that doesn't make me righteous. It doesn't justify me. It does not give me life. God may like the good things we do. In fact, God does. But none of that makes us worthy. None of that makes us righteous. What makes us worthy, what makes us righteous is that God has said, come to me all you who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. When we come with open hands. Because the tendency is for us to say, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. And we repeat the cycle. That's not what this is about. It's about going, I'm the Pharisee sometimes and I'm the tax collector sometimes, but anytime I can only come to God with open hands. For it's only when I come with open hands that God can truly give me life. Because it's not found in anything else. It's found in nothing less than the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is fully and finally pure gift, not earned or deserved, but received rather with open hands, refusing to justify myself and allowing the grace of God to be all for me. It felt right to me 
as we were planning this service and as I was thinking about this service this week, that we end with communion together. What communion is, is an acknowledgement that there is nothing else but the death and resurrection of Christ that gives us life. We don't earn it and we don't deserve it. We can be the holiest person in the world or the most depraved person in the world and we are equally in need to receive God's grace in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so we're going to take communion a little bit differently today. Um, in, in, in other church traditions, um, when they serve communion, um, many of them, you come up and you stand before the priest and you come with arms open, hands open to receive the host, to receive the bread. As an act of coming before God with open hands and desiring to receive the life that only he can give. And, and so we're going to try that in a little, we're gonna, little bit different format today. As I, after I have, go through the liturgy, I'm going to invite you to come up and receive the elements. And I would invite you to come up with open hands. I think it's important to make this distinction. You do not receive this from me. I may be handing you the cup and the bread, but this life doesn't come from me. I don't think any of you think that, but if you do, it's wrong. It doesn't come from me. I don't hold the power to withhold it from you. I'm just the one who's going to be standing up here giving it to you today. This gift comes from God and from God alone. Because my righteousness is filthy rags. I need to receive it too. If you're the last person who comes up, I'm going to ask you to serve me because I need it too. I don't give it to myself. It's a gift from God. Not by work. So that none of us can boast. For we are all sinners in need of grace. We are all in need of the healing touch and the resurrection that only God can give in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you for the gift of life. Lord God, and I thank you for the reminder that however impressive our CV is, our list is, it does not buy us into your good graces. Lord, thank you for the reminder that I am no more worthy than anyone else and I am no less worthy than anyone else. For you have offered me and us life in and through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord God, may I and may we receive this gift from you and you alone today. Lord, as, as a declaration of the new life that is found only in you and only from you. This communion supper is instituted by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a sacrament which proclaims his life, his suffering, his sacrificial death, and resurrection in the hope of his coming again. 
it shows forth the Lord's death until he return. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the spirit. It is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sin and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. We come to the table that we might be renewed in life and salvation and that we might be made one by the spirit In the unity with the church. We confess our faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen and that Christ will come again. And so we pray, Holy God, we gather at this, your table in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor to proclaim release to the captives and to set at liberty those who were oppressed. Christ healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he ate with sinners, and he established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins, and we live in the hope of his coming again. We remember that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And so we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to God in praise and in thanksgiving. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these your gifts. Make them by the power of your spirit to be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ in all the world until Christ comes again in final victory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now I would ask if you would join me as the Savior has taught us, let us pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I would ask you that as you come, you you take the elements. I will give them to you. Receive them with an open hand. For they are the gift of God for the people of God. Receive them, take them back to your seat. And once we have all been served, we will partake of the elements together. Again, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. I would ask you to come and receive his grace today.